Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Alan Hollinghurst, a former Man Booker Prize winning novelist whose new book is called The Sparshalt Affair. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Now, in this book, there are sort of several sparshalt affairs. There's a kind of painting and there's a file and there's a sort of involvement and then there's a scandal. And how do you sort of see, see the whole thing as threading together? Oh, well, I hope, yes, what the reader's sense of what the title might mean sort of mutates and develops as the book goes on. I hope the reader thinks that what happens in the first section is the Sparshalt affair. I hope, and this is one reason I'm being rather cagey answering your question, that the book is full of surprises. But I think one could say that the real Sparshalt affair sort of happens rather later on. The first part is a sort of foreshadowing of it. I'm quite interested in books, in, in writing books which are in some way um, sort of discontinuous. And as you know, I'm now, I've, this and my previous book are both written in five sections with these big gaps in between them. Yes, I was uh, going to say it does seem to have a kind of connection. You have these sort of three generations spanning books. What attracts yeah. you to that form, that sort of jumping around in time and from point of view? Well, of course, it saves one having to sort of write all the story of what happens in the intervening years. But I like the way that it uh, sort of dramatises the ironies of time and change. It enables one to write fairly concentrated little episodes rather than something much more sprawling, so that I hope you get a simultaneous effect of scale, but but also of of some more novella-like sort of constituent elements. And I think I enjoy, and I think readers tend to enjoy the the surprise of the beginning of a new section and you know, having to take some time to find out to orient where, where they are, what the date is, what's going on. And it's quite an interesting way, I, I hope, of engaging the reader imaginatively and, and sort of ha- trying to work out the story for themselves. Yes, I mean, it goes from the sort of 40s to, I guess, the mid-noughties is probably the final It goes to sort of 2013, really, yes. Yeah. 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 One of the things that's sort of disconcerting, but attractively so, is that the first section is this central character, David Sparsholt, who is first glimpsed as... And he's kind of a beautiful Philistine, isn't he? I mean, he yes. Yes, he is. He's a sort. Of, he's very different from the people who are drawn to him. And I suppose he's. I think one of the characters refers to him as a, a cultureless blank, really, on, onto which people project their fantasies, desires, ideas. Because initially we see him sort of framed, don't we? I mean, there's a lot of we framing. See him framed, lot, exactly. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot of framing. We see him fra- framed in a window at dusk, sort of exercising. He is, to use an overused word, a sort of icon. Yes, you feel perhaps that he is going to be the central character of the novel, but I suppose it's in the nature of a novel about a long period of time that the central character doesn't remain the same. Oh, well, I mean, it's almost this sort of, not quite the psycho thing of killing off the hero in the first reel, but, you know, there is a sort of displacement, isn't there? That... There is a displacement, and the book, I suppose, is, is really about his son. I would say he was the, the protagonist of the novel, but, of course, his son doesn't exist in the first part of the book. Yes, he, he remains as a presence, of course, the, Johnny's father, and something that he does, which remains slightly mysterious to the reader, colours his life. I wanted the idea of the, the affair, the, the, the scandal, to have a certain vagueness in the book about which the reader will also yeah, sort of indulge in conjecture. But also when we first hear about it, it's something which has happened eight years previously and people are already a little bit blurry about it, as one is about any uh, anything of that nature. 
certain names when evoked somehow bring it back or what exactly was that what was the relation who was that other person so I wanted it to have that sort of pervasive but rather nebulous presence in the book a thing that goes through the book also is a sort of art and images I mean there's a sort of drawing of Sparsholt that you know in his in his prime but of course yes. you know as as per his later disappearance he's kind of a headless man in that drawing and I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to where the germ for a novel as sort of broad-ranging as this comes. I mean, are you, are you one of those people who, like, sort of, you know, John Fowle sort of gets a maggot, sees an image, and then it turns into... I mean, I sort of it almost felt as if the drawing of this headless man could be where it started. Or... I think with a book like this, and I've, I mean, I've generally felt it, actually, but there have to be at least two maggots, you know, and uh, probably more. And so there will be various sort of initiating things and it takes me quite a while to work out what the relation is between them so you will have a story about a a very public scandal uh, what leads up to it and how it colors the subsequent lives of people involved but you'll also have as you say a, a story about art and taste and change there's quite a thread in the book about modernism about the modern and people being in its grip as a form of rebellion or ideology and then the modern itself becoming old and shabby and sad and needing our care. Yes you've got a lovely kind of it's a bit more than a running joke but about this character this this forgotten novelist. um, Yes. Who I think you have a lot of fun with what's called A.V. Dax. Dax. Which is a brilliant name for it. I feel like I've actually read a monograph on him by D.J. Taylor. I think I have yes. (laughs) Yes, I, I mean, I'm very both touched and amused by the ironies of, of reputation. You know. <laughs> yes, the idea of this novelist who is taken very seriously and certainly takes himself very seriously, but for a while is very, very highly regarded as a sort of pioneering literary artist, and then fairly rapidly sort of drops out of fashion and to the next generation is entirely unknown. And I think that you know we could all think of examples. I mean, indeed, we're watching it happen now, you know, with later. Is that almost a little bit of nervousness? <laughs> <laughs> so I think there, it is poignant, but there's also some some comedy in this. Yes. this well, I mean, that's matter. a theme of the Stranger's Child yeah. as well, isn't it? And it is yeah. in a way, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of literary anxiety kind of goes through your work. Yes, yes. Let's not analyse it too hard. No. Do you do you take a lot of? I mean, I was thinking this. Dax is such a good good name for. Do you take a lot of care with names because you? Do you seem to give your... I mean, it almost feels like a joke that the, the narrator of the first section, the only person who gets his own first-person first narratives, yes. this kind of uh, sort of one heterosexual character <laughs> who's given the most heterosexual name possible, sort of Freddie Green. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else has an interesting name. Yes. No, the three people with very unusual names are introduced on the first page. Though I enjoy naming, and sometimes names come to me sort of instantaneously and others have to be groped around for. And rather like Henry James, in this respect at least, I, my notebooks, I keep long lists of names that I see or, or that I make up uh, and hope to use them one day. And once you've kind of named the characters, does that have an effect on how you write them? It does possibly. I mean, one of my books I wrote with the, th- the four main characters called A, B, C, and D, and I was just, it was only about halfway through that I decided what they were getting. It was very hard not to call them sort of Andrew, Bill, Charlie, and Dave. You know? <laughs> Which uh, book is that? <laughs> the spell. But possibly it does. I mean, I, I had a sort of moment. Dax, the novelist, was, when I was writing it, was, was called Victor Dax, simply. And then I realised it would somehow be far more expressive of him and of his moment if he actually had initials rather than a name. And A.V. Dax, he suddenly seemed to click into focus. Yes, it was an age of initials. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, you said you'd do that. You know, you've written one of these these books with just A, B, C, and D, and sort of placeholders. I mean, your your novels, in terms of their style, are very praised for their polish, and rightly so, I should say. I mean, you're several years between books normally. Do you spend all of those? years you know polishing and polishing and writing and writing I only asked because our mutual friend Philip Hensher once said to me and I don't know if in jest he said people always go on about Hollinghurst taking years over his books I think he just sits around for a couple of years and then writes them quite quickly Uh, Philip's nearer the truth I have to say and I spend a lot of time not writing and enjoy not writing very much usually for a good two years after I finished a book I don't I don't want to start another book and almost feel I I would be very happy never to write a book again but then one sort of creeps up on me and these different ideas sort of su- suggest some relationship to each other and a, a structure starts to emerge and I, I find that I've got some, I got a book on my hands <laughs> w- once again but I do the actual process of writing has always been a very slow one for me and I you know sort of three 300 words in a day or something would be quite normal I mean I don't think of it as sort of polishing and polishing I just sort of crawl along I mean yeah. Colm Tobin I think kind of exaggeratedly says oh I hated it so awful thing to do that's agony to write yes yes I mean I find I find each each book is harder to write than the one before partly I suppose of not wanting to repeat oneself partly new sort of technical challenges one sets oneself the sheer joy of writing which I used to feel very keenly when I started that sort of transcendent thing when hours go past without you even noticing becomes more and more rarely now I find why is that do you think is it just a sort of awareness I just don't know it's just something to do with getting older. In all these different time frames you get, do you have to, I mean, it's sort of slightly denial, you know, do you do lots of research, but rather do you feel you have to get it right in terms of, you know, what, what was happening at this time? You know, you've got Oxford in the 40s, you know, you've got the fire watches, the details of who was taken out of which college and billeted in which other college. I mean, do you feel that that sort of historical fidelity is important or is it all just set dressing? I certainly don't want it to dominate and I, I don't like historical books, you know, which reek of research and you want anything that is research just to, to, to appear as a completely natural part of a, a narrative the first part of the book is of course a memoir it's a sort of reconstruction by Freddie Green sort of 30 years after the events so he, ha- he has a little bit of explaining to do about the strange conditions that prevailed in wartime Oxford and you want those details to be interesting because it is a a very strange moment, and actually not one not very much known about, I think. I mean, that part of the book was really the only one that required much research, and a lot of it I did very very easily through talking to my dear old friend Francis Wyndham, wonderful writer now in his mid-90s, but who went up to Christchurch in 1942 before going into the army and had has very vivid recollections of the whole thing. And He, he reminisced to me about... Uh, being drilled by Edmund Blunden and things like that. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, Francis Wyndham isn't in there, but you do like to drop in the odd historical figure. You've got someone, someone has sex with W.H. Auden. <laughs> yes, that's right. That was a yeah. liberty. Well, well yes, I mean, there, there's a, a sort of a brilliant and rather dissident Christchurch figure. You know, It would have been impossible to pass by, really. <laughs> and you also get, you put John Gross on the telly and you've got Edmund yes. Blunden wandering in and out. You've got John Stallworthy in the last novel. Is it <laughs> yes, it's, 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 it's fun mixing in people just in cameo appearances. I mean, I, I really feel that real people and fictional people exist in subtly different continua and it's, it's very hard to, to put real people into a novel beyond, you know, a brief appearance or like, you know, like Mrs Thatcher in The Line of Beauty. But it's fun to mix in your imagined people with real ones. Yes, it was rather marvellous find, finding on YouTube those 
what was the show called? Some sort of literary quotation uh, programme. Literary yeah. quotation programme of a kind you simply can't imagine existing nowadays. Everybody sitting there. Oh, but that, that really was a real show. You it's a real show, yes. You, you put yes, Freddie in as a... Yeah, I just dropped, dropped Freddie in instead of Anthony Blonde or someone. But it, <laughs> yes, with John Gross and, and John Betchman. And they're absolutely extraordinary in, in uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard as well. Yes, yeah. and they're all smoking the entire time. You, know, you can hardly see them. So that, that just immediately offered itself as, a, as an, an amusing little sort of set piece. Now, do you think of yourself as a kind of realist novelist? I mean, there's definitely a kind of texture of ordinary lived experience about your... I'm very keen on trying to capture the texture of experience. I'm not quite sure what realism in its largest philosophical sense means, but certainly one of my main interests, pleasures as a, as a writer, is in sort of describing things as, as accurately as I can and, you know, the, the nature of human relations as, as well as the situations that they're taking place in. And I think I want a, the reader to have this quite old-fashioned enjoyment of reading the story, but I feel increasingly interested in doing things to the actual form of the book, which sort of surprises and dislocates. So it's a sort of, it's a form of experiment, I suppose, but the, the actual texture of the prose is is not not experimental, and I hope sort of pleasurable. I mean, I do think one should enjoy reading. Yes, do you feel you have a have a kind of duty to <laughs> I the do, reader yeah. at all? Yeah. Also, I mean, one of your, you know, certainly in your first couple of novels, there was a, a lot of attention on the fact that here was a, you know, very intense evocation of a kind of gay world and gay sexuality in quite a sort of in-your-face way. And there's still in this, and in your previous novel, you know, what seems at least to your passing hetero to be a disproportionate number of the characters seem to be gay or, you know, slightly closeted. Is that, in your way of looking at it, sort of act of redress? Was there ever a sort of sense you thought, we're not seeing this stuff written about? That was certainly you know, part of it to start with, very much, I think, yes. Feeling actually here was, here was a whole fascinating sort of area of life which wasn't uh, really being written about in, in, you know, in fiction. It might have been in... I mean, gay life really was either written about in a sort of medical or psychological way, or it was written about in pornography, you know, but making it the sort of main subject of a, of a kind of literary novel was, was something which hadn't really happened when I started in the sort of mid-'80s. I mean, I think it's very, very different now. And it just is... It's true that I'm often writing about... I, mean, I always write centrally about gay characters and often their milieu, which are... You know, rich in other gay people. I mean, my first book was quite sort of claustrophobically gay, I think, in that way, but I, they've opened out more later on. And they are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never trying to tell any sort of systematic gay history or anything, but they are all sort of stu studies in that in a way. And did you, I mean, as you say, when you started out, there weren't very many people writing in the way you were. Do you feel now you're, you're sort of, you're no longer ploughing a lonely furrow, you have... Well, gay lit sort of became a huge... Thing you know, in those years of the the later eighties and nineties, I mean, there was the sort of delayed effect of, sort of gay liberation changes in the law and so forth. I mean, it took quite a long time, really, for a kind of literary response to the nineteen sixty seven to happen in this country. Um, I mean, this book sort of bridges that, doesn't it? It does, really? yeah. And then, of course, there was the, the whole immense crisis of unforeseen crisis of AIDS and so on. So there was another huge sort of gay. Subject, and I think gay literature. But that's lower, it feels lower in the mix, yeah. Yes, I think that's right. And now you don't see particularly new young writers today identifying themselves particularly as gay writers and gay sections in bookshops. I think don't exist. I mean, the whole thing has sort of been subsumed back into the you know, the general 
the mix of literature. Is that uh, is that for the good or is? Yeah, it I think it is yeah. for the good. Yeah, absolutely. Jermaine like um, Greer saying if you legalise marijuana, it'll take all the fun out of it. Funny, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the, you know, if you ask people to name, say, a literary novelist, you'd probably be very close to the top of many of their list as a sort of idea. I mean, do you think there is a sort of distinctive notion of what literary fiction is, and do you think it's it's right to say that's what you're concerned with? I mean, I know I am sort of a very literary writer, and I often seem to be sort of alluding to or consciously working in the sort of fields of other, other earlier writers. I mean, like, as I was, I think, in The Strangest Hour with Forster very much. Perhaps less so in this book, actually. But, uh, I mean, it's full, of, it's full of overlapping narratives and competing literary artefacts, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's true, yes. I mean, I don't know what literary fiction is, really, and I know it's a, a definition that some, a lot of people can jib at, and it's thought to be something excluding rather than something sort of comprehensive. I can't say I bother about it all that much. So are you now going to take two years off, I suppose we should ask? Yes, I mean, I've only got the tiniest preliminary stirrings. I mean, I think just one page of notes about a possible new book. So I, it's not that I'm holding anything back from you. I, I simply don't know anything much about it yet. Better keep it in the dark and uh, see if it germinates. Yeah, I think we have. Alan Hollinghurst, thank you very much. Thanks very much. <laughs>